Are we ready, class? We've had two real good hours that's preceded this, and there's been an awful lot of food offered for us to digest. So maybe we do wise to say, in effect, let's for at least one more hour build up the loins of our minds and make an attempt to get all the good we can out of this last hour because we have a whole afternoon of relaxation. I was looking over my notes a little earlier, and uh, we see very definitely the necessity of uh, establishing some kind of priorities of the amount of material that we want to use. We're going to have to pare down uh, some of the notes that we've had, and that's all right. So uh, what we're going to attempt to do, and it, we feel that it's, uh, that it's very essential that we get a look at uh, this tabernacle before we attempt to proceed through this curtained area here that leads us into what we'll call the porch. Now when we said lead us in through there to the porch, we, we want to establish in your minds that we are not yet in that which is recognized as the holy place. So Lord willing, we hope that we can in some measure demonstrate in uh, the searching of the scriptures and looking at these two pictures where we are and why there's such an involvement in this description of the tabernacle that's given there in the scripture. Now let's turn to uh, let's turn to the uh, the 26th chapter of Exodus. The 26th chapter. And the interesting thing about this is that if we read, and I'm going to put it on the board in the way in which I want you to put it in your notes, and if you ever look at your notes, I think it will help you to remember what we said in trying to establish this point. It's customary to read this 26th chapter of uh, Exodus where there is a detailed description of this tabernacle. It's customary to read it, Exodus 26, 1 through 30. Now, don't put that in your notes right now. It's customary to read it, Exodus 26, 1 through 30. But here's what I want to I want you to put in your notes. Let's establish it. First of all, put in your notes uh, the tabernacle. And let's put Exodus. What did I say? 26. Yeah. All right. 26. 1 through 6. 1 through 6. Then we're going to get, leave a gap here, and we're going to put 15 through 30. 15 through 30. Now, let's take a look at reading that. Well, the fact of the matter is, let's just go on. We've left verses 7 through 14, if you can put that in little parentheses. We've left verses 7 through 14 out within 10. And what we're going to do now, we are going to read this Exodus 26, 1 through 6 and 15 through 30. This is the description of the tabernacle. And as most of you have anticipated, Verses 7 through 14 are a description of something entirely different. It's the description of the tent or covering or ohel as, as opposed to the, uh, the mishkan or the tabernacle proper. All right, with that in mind now, let's take a look at the uh, scripture record here. Exodus 26, 
verses 1 through 6. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet. With cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits, and the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have one measure. The five curtains shall be coupled together one to another, and other five curtains shall be coupled one to another. Now, with the coupling of these five curtains coupled to the other five curtains, we have the total of ten. And thou shalt make loops of blue upon the edge of the one curtain from the salvage in the coupling, and likewise shalt thou make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. Fifty loops shalt thou make in the one curtain, and fifty loops shalt thou make in the edge of the curtain that is in the coupling of the second, that the loops may take hold one of another. And thou shalt make fifty touches of gold, and couple the curtains together with the touches, and it shall be one tabernacle. Now, brethren, you'll do yourself a favor. In that sixth verse, underline in red or blue or whatever pen you have, underline there, it shall be one tabernacle. And if you all ever have occasion to come back to that, I think you'll appreciate it. It'll remind you what we have said here. Now, we skip 7 through 14, and we, we pick up with verse 15. And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of shittim wood standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Am I speaking too loud? No. Okay. I, I didn't want to, but I want to be sure that we get the reading. Two tenons shall there be in one board, set in order one against the other, and thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side, southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards. There are forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. Look at the description of what he's telling us here, the pattern given in the mound. And the two boards shall make for the two corners of the tabernacle in the two sides, and they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head of it under one ring, and thus shall it be for them both, they shall be for the two corners. And they shall be eight boards in their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And thou shalt make bars of shittim wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the two sides westward. And the middle bar in the midst of the board shall reach from end to end. Special emphasis on verse 28. And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for places for the bars, and thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. 
and thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. Now, brethren, it's going to be our attempt to try to demonstrate in some measure. We, we've tried to emphasize several times we are a firm believer in, uh, in visual aids and methods of helping us to, uh, to grasp the, the principle of things. Uh, let's go over here to our pictures. And uh, where is Debbie? Debbie, go over here if you will. Here. I want you to maybe you ought to hold this up a little higher there. You stand over there and hold that up. Then you get the other Yeah. Now be sure that there's not a shadow. Can you all see that? There's the light on the lady. Now to get ourselves thinking in the, in the same line here, uh, we simply want to ask the question, which one of these uh, uh, pictorial representations here, which one of them are the more likely to uh, have appeared to Israel in the camp. Is it this flat top image here that we see in that picture to the left, or is it this one that shows a tent-like structure? The flat top. The flat top. Anyone else? Anyone else? I like the tent top. All right, now some said they like the tent top. Now the interesting thing, this one goes back, I don't know how many years, this is one of the original. This is the original concept that for many, many years, Bible students, uh, as well as Christadelphians, have thought that this is it. But further study of it has proven that there's something else more involved here. We hope, now Dennis, if you'll stand aside for a minute, we hope that the fact that we wrote the description of the tabernacle in Exodus 26, 1 through 6, gaps out 7 verses 7 through 14, and then picked up again with 15 to 30, that it will alert us to what we're describing here. Now, would you believe, we're not asking to accept it, but this is the way we understand it, and we believe it's the correct way. Would you believe that the true picture of the, picture of the tabernacle is a merging in or a composite of both? Meaning that if you take this, and visualize it being under this, brethren, in my judgment and understanding, this is what Israel would have seen in the camp. If you had been anywhere in the camp and had come down to this curtained area, this, this old hell or tent here is, we know that it's over 15 feet high. And we learned earlier in the week that the curtained off area of the court is seven and a half feet high. So obviously any man or woman standing out in this area here could have seen uh, roughly seven half or eight feet of this structure here. They might not have been, well, they would not have been able to see the altar burnt offering or the labor, but certainly they would have seen uh, a massive top of this picture that we see here. So again, we're suggesting to you, we're not asking anybody to accept it, but we believe that this is the true picture. If you think in terms of making this a composite picture, the flat top as visualized under this, I really believe that this is the way it would appear to Israel. It did appear to them. Okay, then this is said there. Could I tell you why I chose that one? Yeah, I had it. But because all the boards across that end are the same length. Because all the boards are the same length. Alright, now, that, I know that's good, really. You, you served us a purpose here. You'll remember, uh, class, in our reading, Diana said the reason that she feels, and understand we're examining it together. I don't want to appear dogmatic. I have my convictions about the thing, but we've been, you know, working with it, and silent has, so obviously there's two schools of thought. Diana said one of the things that leads her to believe that this is the truer picture, that is this flat top, 
is that all the forwards are equal. Now, she's got a point there. She's got a point. But I ask you, and, and Anna, you've rendered a service there, I ask you to, to, to pay special attention to the 28th verse, the 28th verse, and the middle bar in the midst of the boards shall reach from end to end. Now, brethren, I'm just going to suggest to you, I'm going to suggest to you, the middle bar that reaches from end to end is a bar, it's between, it's between the, the boards of the tabernacle. There's 15 feet in here. But that middle bar between it is up in the center coming between the boards of the tabernacle. If I make myself clear, it's the middle bar, but it's up above, and there is an indication that this is the way it looks. Now, uh, let, me use a, let me use an illustration here now. Alright, now what I want to do, I'm trying to think how I can best get it across to the class. Let's visualize, let's visualize Aaron, let's visualize Aaron standing out here in the courtyard, and he's ready to enter in beyond this curtain door here in what is said to be the tabernacle. This is called the door of the tabernacle. Right, he's standing out here and he's ready to proceed in it. With that in mind, we'll say that, that I'm here, I'm standing here. I'm in the courtyard. And since this is a door, and the scriptures describe that as a doorway to the tabernacle, I'm now going to proceed into the, uh, the tabernacle door, or through. And I step inside. Now the question is, am I in the most holy place, or am I in what the scriptures call the porch? The porch is in there. There's a porch. Now, brethren, the scriptures are trying to tell us something. Most of us have seen houses with porches. And when you step upon a porch, you're not in the house, are you? All right, keep that thought in mind. All right, now when Aaron steps through there, we've got a porch that's described there. I think it's in five cubits, in five times twelve, in seven and a half feet. So brethren, visualize with it. Aaron has stepped through the curtain doorway of the tabernacle. It didn't say oh hell there, the tabernacle. And five cubits are going Well, to this first row here is roughly seven and a half feet. So we've got an area that the scripture now, brother, and I'm not interjecting anything. The scripture says that it's a porch. It's a porch. So when he steps through there, he is not in the holy place, but brethren, he can see directly into the holy place. Now, if you've got that picture, I'm going to reach for one of our panels here. Now, what he would have seen, mind you, he is not in the holy place, but what he would have seen standing in that porch area, he would have looked directly into the holy place. He's not in there. He has not passed under this curtain area here of fine twine with these cups. But he has entered, he has entered the hanging doorway to the tabernacle, which is attached, and brethren, we're not going to be able to go to all the detail, but this is attached to the old hell and not to the tabernacle proper. 
Now we know whereof we speak. It's all in the record, and we're going to have to pare down some of this. But this is hanging from that which is structurally known as the Ohel, which is a Hebrew word for tent or covering, and not the tabernacle proper. But Aaron now could look into the, uh, into the holy place. Now, there's something that came to my mind. Yeah. Although I'm not going to lose it like I did the other day. You'll notice, brethren, that in the, uh, the doorway or the gateway to the court, we've got the description, we've had it earlier in our classes, that there was this fine linen, and it mentions the colors of red, purple, and blue. Then you will notice that in this hanging or door, we have the fine linen. I think it may say even fine fine. We have the linen, and we have a repetition of those colors of blue and red and purple. Now, the interesting thing is, and, and Brother Ralph and I were discussing it, several times in our brother's class, he was referring to the first veil as opposed to the second veil. And I was much intrigued by this because of my own study and uh, having great respect for this brother's thoroughness. Uh, we got together after class and I asked him, I said, Brother Ralph, I noticed that you're using the term first veil and second veil. And I said, now I'm not being dogmatic, but up to this point I said, in my study of the Old Testament, I don't see anywhere, I don't remember anywhere in the record that he kept referring to a first veil and a second veil. So Brother Ralph, also being of the right spirit, and iron sharpening iron, he said, well, let's take a look at it. So we got down a concordance and we bent again to run out all of the records. One thing we found was that nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament records did we find any mention of that as one veil or first veil as opposed to the second veil. But Brother Ralph looked at me, but he said somewhere, he said, I'm using that term, and he says, I feel that it's justified. So we begin to look in the New Testament. Now, Brother Ralph, can you remember the verse that you gave me in Hebrews? There's a verse in Hebrews where Paul uses that expression, the first veil as opposed to the second veil. Now, if someone finds it, I want you to put it in your notes because it will emphasize what we're saying here. 9-3. All right. In Hebrews 9-3, I'm going to get that in my notes because I didn't remember. All right. Hebrews 9-3. Just a minute. All right. Hebrews 9-3. Let me have your Bible. I don't want to lose my place in Exodus. Who's got the Bible in Hebrews? All right. Brother, I'm going to read from it now. And this is where our brother got this. So there's some justification for him using that terminology. In Hebrews 9.3, and here's Paul speaking, For there was a tabernacle, I'm reading from verse 2 also, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, so we know where we are, we're in the holy place, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Well, now Paul calls it a second veil. Number one, if he calls it a second veil, then he must be, be referring to something of a first veil. Now, I don't know, I don't know that if we would go back to the actual language, I'm not sure whether the term veil would have been used. Now, that's something for Brother Ralph and all of us to think about. We know that the King James says that, but the King James scholars could have been in error, and I'm not saying they are. What I am suggesting is, is that I'm wondering where the term, uh, the term veil used there in that third verse, say second veil as opposed to first, whether in the sense that Paul used it, 
uh, whether we are talking about a veil or this hanging, but in the studies of the Old Testament, brethren, there is no mention made of any second veil. There's only one veil, but it does mention doorways, curtain hangings, and so forth. Now, I think you all appreciate what we're attempting to say here. We know that the colors themselves, if we look at our key here, we know that the colors themselves tell us that all of it is related to Christ. All of it is related to Christ. But when you come to that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy, this is Christ. He is represented in the veil. And in that sense, I think we should draw unique and special attention to the veil and not really put too much emphasis on one veil as opposed to another. Because in all the Old Testament records, it speaks of this as a door, a curtain hanging there, and it does not refer to it as a veil. And we throw that out for what it's worth. All right, now Brother Ralph says in the record that the diagram also refers to it as a second veil. I know Brother Ralph understands you all do. We're not, Brother Ralph and I are not on loggerheads or anything. We were students on the thing, and I was most interested in finding that Paul uses it. So what are we saying? Paul uses it. There's some justification. But interestingly enough, the Old Testament does not refer to it. So with that in mind, well, you can take it for what it is and weigh it in your notes there and in your consideration of it. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Well, we know that, Charles. Yeah. The second veil is the one that's closer to Yahweh's presence. In other words, the first fruits is the first fruits on a tree, isn't it? The next year is the second. I now, if any of you had the idea that Charles did, what we were speaking of, we're not dealing with this. Now, we're dealing with this where Aaron has just entered through that doorway, and Paul, in his description in Hebrews, was speaking of the second veil, which was back in here, as opposed to the first veil, which he would be referring here. Because we're talking about the tabernacle, what the language say, not the court. Now, again, doesn't this serve a good purpose? If we read carefully in what the Spirit saith unto us, if we look at the items of furniture, if we look at the materials that are used, if we consider the colors, if, brethren, if we use our God-provided key, there's no need for us to be lost anywhere in our subject. Know what we mean? There's no need. If we go to this, if we have any doubts, where am I? First of all, ask, what pieces of furniture are there? What are the colors used? You'll find out where you are. You'll find out where you are. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look now at those 7 verses 7 through 14. Well, wait a minute. We're, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. There's one thing we wanted to mention here. If you want to have some idea of the beauty of this tabernacle, and very definitely it is, there's a description of those boards, and it really is tremendous when you think about it. And, and these things help us to appreciate the subject. Those boards, that are, and you remember how detailed it was about the tenons and the sockets and so forth? Those boards were made of this shit of wood or a cake of wood, and they were 15 feet high, 15 feet high by 27 inches wide. 
27 inches wide, which is 2 feet and 3 inches, right? All right. Uh, let me get another piece of chalk here, a little broader piece. Someone get me a pen. Another little illustration make our point here. Uh, just to look at those, uh, those boards a minute. I'm, I'm just going to estimate here. That's roughly close to 27 inches there. Those boards were that wide. And they're 15 feet high. And you notice in the description it said something about uh, wood standing up. Wood standing up. So they've got them in it and they're standing up there. And it says that they're made of this wood. We know that it has to be something that's human nature in this tabernacle there. But it's covered. It's covered in gold. All of that's covered in gold. And we've got many boards in there. And the, the, the thought occurred to me, most of us I think know, and again it's just a matter of uh, emphasizing to our minds, most of us know that the, the penny, the penny actually, uh, the gold piece, the shape or the size of the penny is about a $5 value, isn't it? It's in my understanding that uh, I've seen one, that the, uh, the penny, a $5 gold piece is about that size. All right, the illustration is apparent what we're seeing is, is that to cover all of those boards, as large as they are, with the amount of gold, there's a tremendous amount of wealth involved there. We, we throw that out from the amount of wealth that's involved in this tabernacle there. Now, any comments or questions, just briefly now, because we want to go on. Did you say just, just uh, for one thing, it was one and a half mm -hmm. times of, of gold in the entire sale? There was one and a half tons in everything involved there of gold, and there was an excess of five and a half tons of silver, or five tons of silver. I forget just what the figure was. By the way, there's a, there's a reference made. I think you all appreciate having it, and I think we'll uh, just, yeah. If you all will look and uh, put out in your, in your notes here, and put out there before you put the reference, uh, put, uh, put the, uh, the wealth value of the tabernacles the wealth value of the tabernacle and there is a detailed accounting of all that's gone in there by talents and those who have a mind and an interest in the thing have computed it and they come up with the tremendous that's where they got this weight these, these tons and so forth and that's found in Exodus 38 verses 21 through 31 there's 10 verses in there that give us the wealth that went into this tabernacle now if you ever have occasion to refer back to your notes and you were intrigued by the amount of wealth there, you can find it in Exodus 38, verses 21 through 31. Going by today's value for gold, that's a million one hundred and fifty thousand dollars just for the gold. You've already figured it, huh, Frank? How much is it? A million one hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars. Over one and a half million. Over one and a half million in things of gold and things. Just the gold now. That's not the silver. That's just the gold. All right, now, brethren, let's take a look now at verses 7 through 14. Now, if you all read as carefully as I think you will, you all are going to see some differences in the description here. Now, let's look carefully and even become conscious of words. Now, back to the same 26th chapter and those seven verses that we temporarily diluted from our reading, let's go back now and pick them up and see the picture that we get here. Yes. Oh, sure enough? Huh? Harold, are you trying to... Huh? No. All right. Okay, that's it. I'm sure... Yeah, all right. It's possible that we could have made a mistake. 
Let's see, where was it? Oh, yeah. Right. Beginning at the seventh verse. All right. Now, calling special attention to those verses 7 through 14 that we temporarily deleted from our reading, let's pick up now and see the picture you get here. Now, had we read it all together, we'd say this is all the tabernacle. But let's look. And thou shalt make curtains of goat hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. The length of the one curtain shall be thirty cubits, the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and the eleven curtains shall be one of all one measure, and thou shalt couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and thou shalt double the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tabernacle, and thou shalt make fifty loops on the edge of one curtain that is outmost in the coupling, and fifty loops in the edges of the other curtain which coupleth the second. And thou shalt make fifty tatches of brass, and put the tatches into the loops, and couple the tent together, the tent together, the old hell together, not Mishkan, but the old hell together, that it may be one. Underline there, circle tent. If you've got room, put old hell, because that's the Hebrew word you use. Put circle tent, make a notation old hell, that it may be one. Now, when we got our description of the tabernacle, it gave us the description, and it said that it may be one. And the word tabernacle is Mishkan. So, brethren, we'd have to be pretty dense. At least we say, well, now look, the writer is trying to tell us something. Now, this is my understanding of the subject, and I'm not alone in it. There's been a lot of uh, brethren that are far more uh, capable than I am of examining this thing. But I'm convinced that this is the true aspect of here. What we end on, 11? All right. And the remnant and the remnant that remaineth of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remaineth shall hang over the back side of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of that which remaineth in the length of the curtains of the tent, not tabernacle, but oh hell, and it shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle. It's not the tent hanging over the tent. It's the tent hanging over the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above of badger skin. So now, brethren, here's a part of the key that we've never touched yet. We've had this for about four days. Now, you remember we put over here, here's the goat's hair and the ram skins dyed red and the badger skins of the carpet. Now, the reason that we separated them is obvious. Since we believe that this is the correct understanding of this uh, record given here scripturally, we believe that using this on this side, it's speaking primarily, these are the things that are used in that tabernacle there. Well, of course, some of it's used in the court. But these particularly, these here are a description of that old helmer tent. Now, there's only one thing I interjected. It says that it is a covering, and we know it's something distinct and separate. So you've got two concepts. Either, either this thing was shaped, tent shaped like we see here, or it could have been laid, brethren, it could have, and in all fairness, we've got to see it in that light, it could have been laid, this goat's hair curtain, this ram skins, which was laid on the top of that, and the badger skins, which was laid on top of that, it could have laid like three layers of blankets over the tabernacle. 
Over there. Over there. Yeah. Now, in all fairness, brother, we're not trying to stand here. In all fairness, we've got to see that picture too. We're not trying to, you know, you know, deceive anybody. We're giving both aspects. But I say to you again, simply a, a brother's opinion. I still believe that this is the more appropriate. And I admit that a lot of the evidence, or some of the evidence, hangs on that 28th verse of Exodus 26, where that bar that goes through the middle. And also another thing, brethren, and this isn't the only thing. We're not basing on one verse. If you notice in the description of the material that went into the curtains that went over the tabernacle itself, there was ten curtains. There was ten curtains. And there was the blue and the purple and the red, fine twined linen, and there's other descriptions says that there was this woven work of cherubic figures. Woven work of cherubic figures. Now, another point to be made. In Inch is a good as mile, I <laughs> Brethren, in the examination of the subject, we found out again that when there's a description of this doorway to the court, and there's a description of this doorway to the tabernacle, we find that it gives us the colors, but it does not tell us the nature of the needlework. It does not tell us the nature of the needlework. It says that the needlework is there, but it doesn't tell us what it is. Now, if you look closely at our picture, and again, this is because Sister Medlin and I couldn't work that closely together, she inadvertently put the needlework of the cherubims in this outer curtain and this one. But, let's make a point. The scriptural record does not show it that way. It uses the colors, and there's needlework, but it says nothing about the cherubims. But when we read carefully, when we read carefully, all of a sudden we catch it, that when it starts giving the description of the curtain over the tabernacle and the veil, it gives us the blue, the red, and the purple. But then it interjects that the woven work is woven work of cherubims. And it's a point to be well taken. Now, any questions or comments? If, if you put this curtain right here on this, over to this building, which mm -hmm. first first belongs. Mm -hmm. Now, which curtain you speaking of? With that tent, over that building. Put this building under that tent. That's right. Then that's what we said. Yeah, but you got to put this uh, curtain, this fine needlework, to that building and not to this tent. All right, all right. Now, that's another thing. No wonder people get the description of the thing. It uses some tabernacle there. It uses this word there. And it would appear that this is attached in here. Now we said, yeah, all right, all right, now that's right. We're not trying to get, we're simply saying, remember now that when Aaron stepped through, when Aaron stepped through, it didn't say he was in the tabernacle, and it didn't say he was in the multiple right? It said he was in the porch of the tabernacle. I get the language, brethren. If you step upon a porch, you're at the porch of my home, but you're not in my home, are you? But it is the porch to my home. Now, again, another illustration. If I walked in through that doorway, as Aaron would have, and I'm on the porch, and I look up, what is going to be the roof? What's going to be my ceiling made up? Huh? All right, so what am I going to see first? If I look up after I stepped on this porch there, I can see in the goat there. All right, that's what I'm going to see, the goat there. That's what I see. This rough, woven together goat there. If I were to go outside of that 
farmers go outside and peep under the goats there and see what's on top of this one, but I see. Right. So looking from the inside, I hope we're not losing ourselves. Looking on the inside, if I looked up, number one, I would see goat's hair. But I'd have to go outside to find what the next one, wouldn't I? Unless I bored a hole up through the goat's hair. If you want to get that, this is what I'd see. The ram skins. The ram skins. The next one would be the badger skins porpoise. Now, Anna, you're not following what we're saying in language. We said if you lifted it up. If you lift up that blanket, you got it by layers. All right, so one, two, three. One, two, three there. All right, now, this is that which makes up the old hell here. So in verses 7 through 14, these are the things that are used. And in verses 26, 1 through 6, and 15 through 30, the, uh, tabernacle. Huh? tabernacle. Yeah, the tabernacle. And the tent. All right, now, there's, there's another point. All right, just a minute. Now. Let me just stand here and collect my thoughts. That's all I need is just a gate for a brother to collect his thoughts. <laughs> there was something else I wanted to mention there. What about that porpoise? Well, yeah, Jim, that has the grin on thing. I know last year there was uh, some discussion about the porpoise. I have an affection for the porpoise. I've seen him recently on television, and he's a very intelligent animal. That has nothing to do with his scripture sound. But the porpoise has this blue-gray skin. He's a gentle creature and he's intelligent. He's not a scavenger. There's many things about him that are admirable. And, and I think Brother Ron Roth said last year something about maybe he wouldn't fit in. Maybe the porpoise would not fit in with uh, the animals described, the unclean animals or the in the sea. Well, right now, without dilly-dallying too long, there's a possibility of that. I hope to maybe go home and get in that. Ron, did you do anything on that to establish whether... He just thought that we might, we might ought to be careful. So I'll tell you another thing I'd like to mention. If you want to in your notes, uh, put over here in, in uh, another little uh, parenthesis, and it has some bearing. Put seal skins. The seal it also has a, a skin that would withstand... What we're talking about, brethren, is that which is going to have to face the weather. Right here, that's one here. It's going to have to face the weather. Now, you'll notice that I've got it in a bluish gray thing. Because I think that maybe the porpoise skin, you know, but, that, but I put it in this, in this color, I accommodated this blue gray to give it this color here. And I told Sister Medlin to follow that. What, what's wrong with the badger skin? Huh? What's wrong with just leaving the badger skin? All right, Jim. All right, that's it. We got to looking at the badger and... What well, little bit, and I, this didn't have been an exhaustive study. Some of you all think, well, look, I'm aged enough to carry Pergia. But in looking at the subject, what I found in the little bit I read, the badger, number one, didn't seem to be native to that country, the badger that we know. And I didn't find at the time, and this is not an exhaustive study, but I didn't find at the time something of the equivalent to the badger that we know in the North American continent. And he's a very vicious thing, and everything about him is an antithesis of what we're discussing. So in that way, in my mind, I said, I'm rejecting it. Get me something else. Don't give me a badger. But if, you, if some of you know that there's an animal in that country in the times in which we speak of in Israel, that there was an animal known as badger, and it's something quite different what we know, that's fine. We're not going to be dogmatic about that. All right, Christ. waste your time, but how did you arrive in Corpus? Was that your own idea? Did somebody suggest that? Or? No. Uh, all right, Frank says, how did I arrive at the idea of Corpus? 
uh, students of Scripture. It, in fact, the matter is that some of you will look in your marginal rendering. I think you'll have part of it. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, brother, and answer, that's an answer, Frank, to what you said there. Now we want to move on here. We've gotten the tabernacle and we've gotten the tent. And brethren, so we won't waste any unnecessary time here. Let's proceed now into the holy place itself. Again, to establish the point, Aaron has stepped through the door of the tabernacle, but he's in the porch. He's in the porch. What's the porch for? Well, what's one thing, a porch is for convenience. But if the scripture tells us that a porch, we've got to take it into our consideration. He didn't proceed through that curtain right into the most of it. He said he's on a porch. Good reason we've been on the porch. But now I'm going to leave the porch and I'm going to step directly into the holy place. So since the child, let me step into the holy place. <laughs> and now I'm in the holy place. And Aaron's standing there. Now if he should look up, what would he see, brethren, according to what we have here? What would he see? He see the finest of blind linen. The best, the very loveliest of women, and this woven work of blue, purple, and red, and he sees distinctly cherubic figures, elemistic figures. That's what he would have seen. That's what he would have seen there. Alright, now he's in there, and let's take a look now at the description of the holy place. And for that, where's the beginning? For that, let's turn to uh, Let's turn to Exodus 25, 23 through 30, because the first item that we're going to consider there is the table of showbread. I'm going to put this kind of centrally here. The first item we're going to consider is the table of showbread. All right, so in this Exodus, what did I say now? 25, 23 through 30. All right, let's take a look at that. Exodus 25, 23 through 30. I were now in the holy place, and thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of a hand's breadth, brethren, hand's breadth, Thou shalt make a border of a hand's breadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood or acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, that the table may be borne with them. Obviously, there's a very practical thing here. We've got again the staves so that it might be moved about. And thou shalt set upon the table the showbread before me always. All right, so let's take a look at the description we have of the showbread. Now, just briefly, brethren, says that the showbread is there, and in a companion verses, let's get that. Put in your notes there where you've got the table of showbread, but also Leviticus 24, 5 through 8. Uh, Jerry, I'm going to ask you to read that, if you will. Leviticus 24, 5 through 8. And let's read loud enough where everybody can get the benefit. Leviticus 24, 5 and 8. 
Okay, now, Jared. Now, with that reading, it's given us a description of the table of showbread, and it's given us a description of the bread that was placed upon it. Just briefly now. Here, all of it is made of what? Wood. All of it's made of wood, but it's covered in what? Oh. Now, is there any reason, brethren, again thinking, is there any reason why this item is not in brass as opposed to gold or even silver? Number one, the record says gold, doesn't it? Didn't we say, and brethren, I think this gives us an excellent opportunity to reestablish something that's very important in our study. Did we not say earlier in the week? Just a minute now, let me get it. Did we not say earlier in the week when we considered our materials, we had a principle. See, I've marked it. Remember I said about this little star? That's my own little peculiar way of marking things are important. All right. Principle. The materials used in the complete tabernacle, the court, the holy place, and the most holy, these materials have become more precious in value, in beauty, and in workmanship as we approach the dwelling place of Yahweh's presence by Elohim manifestation. We know that it was the Elohim manifestation uh, of Yahweh here. This principle, that is, that these uh, materials are more beautiful and of greater value and a much finer workmanship, this principle holds true in all the furnishings of the furniture used in the tabernacle surface. So, as you would expect, out in the courtyard we've got brass. But when we get in the holy place and the most holy, we find wood still being there, but we find gold instead of brass. So we are correct. The, 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 uh, the, the God-given key says that this is what it is. So as we proceed towards the presence of Yahweh's presence, the value of these materials increases, as well as in beauty and workmanship. Now, let's go back to the, uh, to the table of showbread. Now, I mentioned something that Effie June asked yesterday. I said, well, I hadn't looked at my notes too well, so I, uh, I knew we were going to get to it. She heard me refer to that as the table of the faces, or the bread of the faces, rather. And uh, I know that some of you have made some study of this, but this is actually what's meant, the bread of the faces. It's called showbread, but literally bread of the faces. That's a rather unusual description about this bread. All right, we think, too, that we followed faithfully what's described there in it. So we had Sister Medlin put those rolls of bread. There's six loaves each, but there are just two rolls, and that's what the scripture says. So we followed what it says. Then it says that this frankincense was on the top there. So if you'll look, you can see that there's frankincense sitting upon those two rolls of bread there. We said that there was a handbreadth of gold around it, of a, a border. So we basically followed the pattern there. Now, I'm going to turn to this very excellent little pamphlet, the tabernacle, and we'll read direct from it to give us some of the spiritual uh, meanings of that uh, showbread table there. By the way, the description of the cubit there, did you notice it was a rather small table? Not anything like some other things we've already had described. The size of it, breaking it down from the cubits into eye language, the size of that table, think of a yardstick. A yardstick is three feet, or 36 inches. It's three feet by 18 inches by 27 inches. So if you add a yardstick, yeah, a yardstick's not quite that long. But what we have, brethren, we have a, a table roughly, a yardstick could come about here. We have a table about like this. 
uh, 18 inches wide, which a foot and a half come over here. So we're coming around here, and it says that it's uh, that it's 27 inches high. Uh, let's see, my foot, yeah, about 27. What we've got here, if I could take that off of there, is something roughly the size of this right here. That's the size of this. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. So I thought it's interesting how to get the size. All right. Now let's look at some of the uh, things about that table of showbread. Let me get my breath a minute. Someone get me a drink of water, really. I'd appreciate it if I just had just a little, you know, just... Anybody get a little cup or something? I got a can if you'll trust my... Well, there's something in it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's wet, isn't it? What, dude? Yeah. Now, thank you, Harold. Someone asked me, what is it that occasionally y'all see me chew on? Those are whole clones. They sweeten the breath. They give good taste in the mouth. That's what I'm chewing on. Several have asked me, so that's what it is. The table, the table measured two cubits by one cubit and was one and a half cubits high. It was made of wood overlaid with gold and had a crown of gold round the top. There was a border of a hand's breadth wide all around the table, presumably to hold the legs firmly together. To hold the legs firmly together. You look up there at the top where those legs are. This also has a crown of molding of gold. It is assumed that this crown and the crown on the top would be richly ornamented perhaps with flower work and palm branches. On this table were placed 12 cakes in two piles, six in each pile. On the top of each pile was a vessel containing frankincense. And every Sabbath, not every day, but every Sabbath, the cakes were renewed. The old ones were eaten by the priest, and the frankincense, which we see upon those Cake there, or loaf of bread. The frankincense, find my place, was burnt upon the altar of sacrifice. Now, brethren, let's hold it for just one minute there. Got another, got the All right, here it is. Now, brethren, it tells us that in Aaron, in spring in there, he takes. Uh, Judas, come up here a minute. We can use you again. You hold that one. It tells us in the in the record there that Aaron takes the frankincense from the cakes, but he burns it upon this altar. And this altar is the golden altar that says Hold that a minute. <laughs> That's good. Well, then she got to your head. That's all right. He takes the incense from the cakes of our loaves of bread, and he burns it upon this golden altar of incense, which sets before the veil. See it sitting there before the veil? So that's what he's done. He's taken the incense and put it on the altar before the veil. Now, where does he get the fire to cause the incense to burn? Where did he get it? Right, 
song. He got to go out here, didn't he? Did we not say, again, staying with our subject and staying as God intended us to, did it not say then, we've got it in oath, that it burned continually? We've had it, it burned continually. Alright, the incense then was burned or started or ignited from the cold from that altar out there. Okay, Dennis, you sit down there and we'll call you through again in a minute. I hope, brethren, that it's not distracting to you. You can see that uh, we're limited as to how we can handle these panels when we uh, have to have them in our possession like that. Now, one sees in these 12 cakes a memorial of the 12 tribes placed before God on the table as a token of Israel's dependence upon God. You remember what we said, brethren, Israel's dependence upon God. Did we not say in looking at this key... And I want you, brethren, to appreciate the fact that we just didn't reach out and grab something, but we're convinced that when you look at this subject, that providence is involved here. God's providing of Israel, both natural and spiritual. All right, one season the 12 cakes, a memorial of the 12 tribes, placed before God on the table as a token of Israel's dependence upon God for the fruit of the Lamb. Interesting thought occurs to me. I don't know whether we're going to have, to be, have time to examine a little bit, but uh, Brother Bud Roth mentioned something that he's not thoroughly convinced as to the terminology uh, before the Lord. Uh, Bud feels like that when we talk about taking those coals from that altar, that they're thinking in terms of this uh, altar right here. And it's been our understanding and impression that uh, those coals are taken from that bronze altar. But what he's saying is that we need uses the terminology before the Lord. But you will have noticed that when there's a description made of the showbread, although it is not standing before that veil, it still says that it's a table before the presence of the Lord, before the Lord. So just keep that thought in mind. We're not rejecting or anything. We're just saying we keep that in mind. The terminology is used of the showbread table Where in the world could I have... Huh? The showbread table is still considered to be before the Lord, and yet it is not standing directly before that veil or before the most holy place. Yeah. Yes. Is the incense then the same as what we know as incense today? Well, I think there are other descriptions, I stand to be corrected, but I think there are other descriptions that give us some idea of the uh, material uh, or spices used in the incense. But be that as it may, it was according to divinely given specification. There, there's too many instances in Scripture where it tells them that make it according to God's uh, uh, specifications, and if the apothecary did otherwise, it would not have been acceptable. Now let's go on here. Huh? In other words, then, what we know today is Oh, well, yeah, there's so much to it, yeah. And, uh, yeah. We're back where they really, you know, they put emphasis on water it down. Yeah. But the names given to these cakes is important. In our version, it is showbread. Literally, it is bread of the faces of Yahweh. This provides an important link with the encampment of Israel under the four standards and is a fitting name to give to the bread which represents the nation. Now, brethren, there's reason why it's called literally the bread of the faces of Yahweh. We're still talking about the four square encampment. You've got the faces on those standards. We still have not dealt with the faces of the cherubims, but it is literally the bread of the faces. 
These faces of Yahweh were much in evidence in the holy place of the tabernacle, embroidered on the veil and on the curtain roofing of the compartment. On the curtain roofing of the compartment. So what he's basically saying here is that there are cherubic figures, and the cherubim is Eloistic, are the mighty ones of Yahweh. So that's what we have described there. The table then with its load, surrounded by bowls of frankincense, speak of Israel giving their weekly labor to God with prayer and thanksgiving. Now all of us are familiar with the fact that this incense is very definite, a scriptural definition of prayer. And on the day of rest, that labor is accepted and consumed by the representatives of God, the priest. The lesson conveyed to us in these days is clearly that our labor must all be done with a single eye to the glory of God. The fruits of our labor must be dedicated to Him. If offered with frank, frankincense prayer in the spirit that we are but stewards of that which has been given to us, we may hope and trust in His final acceptance. Now, we've gotten the showbread, all right? I Right offhand, I can't answer that. Now, I imagine it would be. I mean, it would suggest it would be, but right offhand, I mean, that, that thought didn't occur to me, but I would imagine it would be. All right, let's go to the next item there. Uh, let's get the... It's called candlestick, but the more appropriate thing is lampstand. When you think of a candlestick, you think it's a stick. It's a candle. But what was in there is this, brethren. What was in there is a lampstand. These are the candles of the lights of the lamp. So it's a lampstand. And it's seven tiered. There's seven of those on there. What's that made of? We just go out and go. What's that made of? What about a casey wood? No. Huh? No. You mean you all are rejecting the idea of a casey wood? It's made of gold beat now. What was it? It's made of gold beat now. Right. Not any casey wood then. Scripture says it wasn't. It says it was all of one piece. And it was made of gold. So every can you imagine the value as well as the beauty of what that must have looked like? Today? Now this brings up an interesting point too. It's something I discussed with Sister Florence Tucker there about uh, whether that lampstand continually burned, what it meant by trimming, as well as the myth that Aaron lighted it in the evening. Sister Florence and well as a class, we'll try to touch a little bit upon that. And again, I'm going to say to you, brethren, we are not, we are not saying, we have not said that we are the final word on this thing and don't give me any other suggestion. Our experience, we want to learn. We've learned some things this year that we didn't get last year. So we're not rejecting anything. Somebody says something to me and I say, I'll, you know, I want to consider it. We want the truth of the matter. We're not interested in perpetuation of wrong ideas. Fact of the matter is, what did we learn here, brethren? Did we not say, did we not say that this is out of place? This is out of place, that labor there. This, and this one, you can see that it's more in line with the, this is the truer thing. As we also said that in that hanging on the outer court, as well as the hanging of the tabernacle or the old hell there, it didn't have true big figures in it. All right, let's take a look at the lampstand. How much time do we have? Uh, two minutes. Huh? Two minutes. Huh? 
two or three minutes. Let's don't take a look at the lampstand. Uh, we, 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 we're not in need yet. Let's don't take a look at it. Now, we've got about three minutes. If I make mention, the bread of faith will also be fixed as we proceed down through it. The work of Christ in four phases of his life and his ministry labor before God. Absolutely, Chuck. Absolutely. I'll tell you another thing, brethren. It triggers all things. Remember earlier in the week, we talked about those four horns? The brazen altar is Christ. Christ is our altar. That's what uh, what Paul says in Hebrews. We have an altar. We have an altar which is Christ. But interestingly, in the description of the tabernacle, it tells us about this altar, but it says that there are four horns, one with the altar. So if it's one with the altar, they're one, there's a multitude, there's somebody with Christ. Christ is the head of the body. He's not the torso in that sense. He's the head of the body. So if you've got the head and the body, you've got it all one, haven't you? The four horns, one with the altar, it's the multitudinous body of Christ. And we said in the first day of our study here, we said that this beginning in the camp, all the way through this subject here, that it is a prophecy of the work of Christ and the work of the saints. And brethren, if we can see that point, we'll appreciate any time we come to this subject proceeding as we have into it. All the time we're drawing near to this Yahweh presence in the holiest of holies. All right, anyone else? All right, Chapman? I didn't hear you, Chapman. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, oh, Chapman. Yeah. You know, there's so much the wealth of detail, and I've been there, that it's it's hard to assimilate on you. Yeah, I think he does. Yeah, yeah. I think on the four pillars. Four pillars, yeah. Yeah, the four pillars. This one thing bothers me about those horns is that they bound the sacrifices to the horns. Well, how could you bind sacrifices to the work for the, to the people, to the She said uh, she has a number. She said there's a little thought. If you're if you're binding the sacrifices on the horns, how can you bind what now? The sacrifices to the people. In other words, the body of Christ. Well, brethren, the answer to that in our judgment, and we think we're being consistent. Remember, there has to be a practical application of those horns, and it didn't meant to, to cover everything. There was a practical use, an immediate practical use, as well as a spiritual significance. And then we think that that's the answer to it. There are, there are some things that are practically used here that's not meant, you know, to, to cover what we say the spiritual thing. There had to be, well, of course, this is that 